0: Three men dead The steaming, radioactive wreckage of a reactor And a mess that extended far beyond the confines of SL-1 And the boundaries of the testing station You'll remember that as part of its basic design SL-1 had no containment building No structure that could withstand the force of a steam explosion And keep radioactive materials from escaping All it had was a thin, metal-walled structure Almost like a silo which, given the circumstances, held together remarkably well. In fact, it kept a lot of the contaminated materials from launching out into the desert. But it was not airtight, not by any means, and radioactive particles easily slipped through the cracks and out the exhaust vents into the cold night air and made their way across southeastern Idaho. As Todd Tucker, author of Atomic America, explains.
1: One of the reasons that reactor testing laboratory was where it was, was because it was super remote. So, I mean, the, if you haven't been there, it's hard to appreciate kind of how, how much space you're talking about. But like the, the uh, when the, when the alarm went off at SL1, the on-site fire department was 10 miles away.
0: I have been there and it is a lot of space, definitely isolated, but it's not empty. So the three operators of SL1 were not the only ones at risk when it exploded. That night, there were other people working at different parts of the testing station. Then there were the emergency personnel that responded first, who were then followed by hundreds more, doctors, nurses, scientists, government officials, plus all of the residents of the towns peppered throughout Idaho's Snake River Plain, including the appropriately named Atomic City, located only five miles away with a population of 140. The town of Arco, 16 miles away with about 3,000 people and Idaho Falls, which sat 50 miles to the east and had roughly 33,000 residents. So although the explosion didn't happen in a major urban area, like, say, Chicago, a large number of people were still at risk of radiation exposure, not to mention all the animals and plants that also called this desert home. But the Atomic Energy Commission and other government officials did not want people to freak out, so they may have downplayed the level of risk, at least publicly.
1: There was a definite downplane of the amount of radiation contamination that had, that had escaped. The official press releases were like nothing to worry about, but the first responders uh, absorbed enormous amounts of radiation, the firefighters that were the first on scene.
0: But behind the scenes, the AEC and the scientists at the National Reactor Testing Station knew they needed to figure out how much radiation had escaped, how far it had spread, who had been exposed, and what effects that exposure might cause, both now and years down the road. The bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki highlighted the immediate effects that a big dose of radiation had on people. But we didn't yet understand what a smaller dose could do, especially long-term. And this is something we're still trying to understand today. While certain effects of radiation on the body are more immediate and obvious, others, like cancer, are more subtle, the links less clear. How much radiation is safe? And just how much of a threat does it pose when it comes to our health? I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, Going Nuclear, a series about the power of the universe contained in the tiny little package of the atom. You and I are living in the atomic age. The endless debate over harnessing that power.
2: The mysteries of the universe.
0: And whether we humans are responsible enough to mess with it.
2: a benefit or a destruction of good or of evil.
0: To understand what radiation does to us, we should start with a quick recap on how radiation works. Back in Episode 2, we learned about unstable atoms. If you recall, the nucleus of an atom is made up of protons and neutrons. The protons are positively charged, and will try to push away from each other, while the neutrons have no charge and serve as the glue that holds all the parts together. Atoms with roughly the same number of protons and neutrons tend to be more stable. Those with too many, or not enough, neutrons can't hold together as well. These unstable atoms are sometimes called radionuclides because they are radioactive. And as they decay, as they try to get back to a level of stability, they kick off protons, neutrons, electrons, or other excess energy. That process is what we call radiation. And radiation comes in different types, like alpha, beta, and gamma, depending on what kind of particle or ray shoots off the decaying atom.
1: And we found that there were some particles which seemed like they moved really slowly, but had a huge momentum. And when they smacked into something, they could do a decent job of disrupting the stuff they smacked into. We also found out that they were easy to stop because they like to smack into stuff. We called them alpha particles.
0: Alpha particles are made up of two protons and two neutrons, so they're generally considered pretty big and heavy. They come from the decay, the breakdown, of the heaviest radioactive elements, like uranium and radium. And because they are so big, a thin layer of cloth can stop them, or even just a piece of paper.
2: It won't go through the dead layer of your skin, which is, you know, 0.07 millimeters deep. It it stops very easily at short ranges in air. Where it becomes a hazard is if you have it internally.
0: That's Seth Cantor. He's a radiological engineer at the Idaho National Laboratory. And he explains that it's hard for alpha particles to travel very far from the atom that emits them, meaning it's not easy for the particles to get into your body on their own. But if you were to swallow, or more dangerously, inhale alpha-emitting atoms, like from uranium, or get them into an open wound, then those alpha particles are right there and can severely damage living tissue and DNA. Alpha particles are often associated with lung cancer, which affected many of the Navajo uranium miners I mentioned in the last episode. Now, beta particles are similar to electrons. They're much faster and lighter, and they can get through paper, and in some cases, through your skin.
2: Um, What can happen with betas at high levels is it, it can constrict blood vessels temporarily and cause, causes pooling of the blood below the surface It looks like red spots. It's called erythema.
0: They are less harmful than alpha particles, but you still don't want to inhale or swallow them. Depending on how energetic a beta particle is, how fast it's moving, you'd need a piece of plastic or a thin sheet of metal like aluminum to block it, which is yet another good use for tinfoil hats. And then there are gamma rays. Where alpha and beta particles have mass, meaning they're made up of protons and neutrons and electrons, gamma rays are just pure energy. Think of them as being similar to visible light, but with a shorter wavelength and a higher frequency. For a quick breakdown of light and waves and the electromagnetic spectrum, check out Season 2, Episode 3 of Wild Things. Gamma rays can easily pass through skin and clothes. In fact, it takes several inches of a dense metal like lead, or a few feet of concrete, to stop them. And if gamma rays interact with your cells, they can affect all of your tissues, from your skin to the marrow of your bones. Now in all of these cases, the amount of damage depends on how much radiation you're exposed to, for how long, and how much gets absorbed. There's an entire system of units to measure radiation that I'm not going to delve into, things like Curie, Rentgen, Gray, Siebert, and REM. But we'll hear the term millirem often enough that I want to define it. A millirem is one one-thousandth of a REM, and it measures the amount of radiation absorbed based on the type of radiation and the effect it has on your organs. Basically, it's the dose. According to the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission, The average American gets a dose of about 620 millirem of radiation per year from the sun, from food, from the environment. Seth says another way to think about radiation is in terms of speed and miles per hour traveled.
2: Like if I'm going 60 miles per hour in one hour, I go 60 miles. So if I'm in an area where the dose rate is 60 millirem per hour in one hour, I would get 60 millirem. But the best way to look at it isn't so much the rate as the time. If you were going 100 miles per hour, for an hour, you'd go 100 miles. But if you only did that for a minute, you wouldn't, you'd not you be go less than two miles.
0: So at 60 millirem per hour, if you stood in that spot for an hour, you'd get about 10% of that 620 millirem dose you receive annually. In two minutes, you'd get about 2 millirem, a pretty small amount. So time exposed is important. How it gets absorbed and where it gets absorbed are other important factors to consider, because certain tissues will be more affected than others.
2: So different parts of the body will react. If you look at the body, basically the blood-forming organs in your trunk, from the gonads up to your neck and down your arms where you have bone marrow, they're the more radio-sensitive parts of the body.
0: So let's look at the absolute worst-case scenario, like, say, what might have happened to the men of SL1. We know that Richard McKinley was the only one who survived the explosion, but he absorbed radiation directly from the exposed core for at least two hours before being rescued. His dose wouldn't be measured in millirem, but in actual REM. Hundreds of REM. Had his wounds not killed him, he likely would have suffered from something called acute radiation syndrome, also known as radiation sickness or radiation poisoning. Acute radiation syndrome doesn't necessarily kill you all on its own. It's all dependent on the amount. As Seth told me, most people generally wouldn't have a problem until they get about 25 rem in a short period of time. That's 25,000 millirem, which is a whole lot. That would likely cause a suppression of your white blood cell count. This is something you can recover from, but you risk getting a secondary infection because your immune system is weakened and it also takes a longer time for wounds to heal. When you get up into the hundreds of REM, it can really mess up your GI tract, causing diarrhea and vomiting, which is what most people associate with radiation sickness. And when you get into the 400, 500, 600 REM region, it affects your blood-forming organs, like the marrow in your bones. Essentially, the higher the absorbed radiation dose, the sooner the effects will appear, and if you can't get medical treatment, the higher the likelihood of death, especially if you get a truly whopping dose.
2: Well, typically over a thousand rem, you're going to have so much damage across your body that typically uh, your systems just can't recover fast enough. You'll probably die of dehydration. You're susceptible to disease. You can get pneumonia, and so anything uh, a thousand or up is probably going to be lethal.
0: After the SL-1 explosion, the emergency responders who arrived first couldn't accurately measure the amount of radioactivity because their instruments redlined, they went completely off-scale, before they even got into the reactor room. To keep the firefighters and rescue personnel from getting too much exposure, the doctors at the NRTS put strict rules in place. No one could be in the reactor room for longer than a minute meaning there was effectively a conga line of emergency workers trying to recover first the injured Richard McKinley and then the bodies of the other two men over the course of a series of shifts that lasted nearly a week. Even with those precautions, by the time they finished their work, some of them had absorbed huge doses of radiation, as much as 13,000 millirem. That's 13 rem, a little more than half of that 25 rem that Seth Cantor told me about earlier, the point at which most people would start having problems. Far less radiation would have escaped the building and drifted on the night air to the nearby towns. Scientists had to examine the reactor first to be able to roughly calculate how much had gotten out. Todd Tucker again.
1: They have some idea of how much radioactivity is contained in the core. So anything that wasn't there after the explosion had to go somewhere. Um, So that's, you know, they knew how much fuel, how much was in the core, so they could make a rough calculation of how much was expended in the explosion.
0: But even once they knew how much radiation had leaked out, there wasn't anything that anyone could actually do about it. Once the reactor exploded, the genie was out of the bottle, so to speak the best the scientists could do was come up with ways to track it.
1: One was just surveys, right, using measurements, um, measuring both radiation and contamination uh, and kind of increasing circles around the plant, things that were dependent on like the prevailing winds, try to mitigate the, the spread during the cleanup operation.
0: Those surveys detected radioactive gases at least 30 miles to the south of SL1 and readings continued to climb over the following weeks, reaching twice the amount that would normally be found in the environment. The Atomic Energy Commission also sent small planes up to collect air samples and took cuttings of local sagebrush daily to test the radiation levels.
1: Yeah, they were doing things like uh, measuring the milk of cows in the surrounding area.
0: They found elevated levels of radioactivity in the milk of several cows. They also captured and killed wildlife to examine it.
1: They wanted to see what, you know, what was ingested by the wildlife, because some of that could get very close. You know, there could be, there were rabbits that were, you know, right next to the reactor. So some of those, it was, it was
0: worse. The rabbits had high levels of radioactive iodine in their thyroid glands. No doubt some of the humans would have too, if the scientists had been able to dissect them. But despite all this, it doesn't appear that officials issued any warnings to the public. I don't think this was out of negligence or an attempt to hide things. Based on the knowledge at the time, they didn't think that the radiation levels were all that high. And so they saw no need to worry people. Of course, if you're living in the community where a plume of radioactive gas just came through, you might actually want to know how much radiation is safe. Can a certain amount be okay? Where's the line? Because the initial understandable reaction is that this is bad, very bad. For a lot of people, just the word radiation conjures up images of mutations, cancer, and a painful death. And those fears aren't unfounded. Significant exposure to radiation can cause real health problems. Plus, radiation is invisible. You can't smell, taste, or feel it. So the damage that it does is not always obvious or immediate.
3: Because we can't see it, then we don't It's not subjective, Well, I go stand there, I'm okay, and I go stand here, I'm not okay. Like, it's, we don't know, unless we're carrying around our little Geiger counter and uh, paying attention all the time.
0: Meet Dr. Dave Menson.
3: I am a nuclear engineer turned geophysicist, uh, and I'm a research scientist at the University of Colorado Boulder and the director of UNAPCO, which is a National Science Foundation research facility.
0: We are in a canyon near a cavern at someone else's previously excavated mine.
3: So we're on the yeah, we're in the front range of Colorado, you know, right, where the mountains come up and there's a lot of exposed uh, sedimentation here and we're at an area where there's a lot of we're at actually an old yellow cake mine, the old uranium mine here, about two miles from where the mountain starts, west of Golden.
0: I've dragged Dave up here into the mountains on an overly warm and sunny November morning, just a couple days before Thanksgiving. It's a holiday week, so his 11-year-old son, Henry, is with us, too.
4: What's up?
3: Henry, sit over here. Away from the radiation.
0: Cars slalom up the steep canyon, speeding past a decrepit old miner's shack. And up the hillside, where we're standing, are the remnants of the wooden tower that the former miner used to hoist uranium up to the surface. I've brought along a Geiger counter because I want to learn about background radiation, the radiation that's just around us in, well, the background.
3: Background radiation is a funny term that we use. It's like everything that you're not intending to measure. So like here, we're saying we're interested in what is coming from this mine. So we'd have to go walk over there.
0: He points to a spot around an outcropping of rocks.
3: And measure the background because we have our own environmental cosmic ray background. This rocks could have some background radiation, and then we go compare it to theirs.
0: Background radiation comes from completely natural sources, like space, also called cosmic radiation. It's
3: mostly generated by stars, and, and then all the space dust out there that's decaying um, from stars. <laughs> you know, it all comes from stars in the beginning, all these heavy elements and so it's just dispersed. The sun is a big nuclear reactor and it's generating giant fields of gamma waves and, and whatnot and we're just bathing this radiation constantly.
0: You'll be bathing in more of that cosmic radiation if you're at a higher elevation.
3: Because the atmosphere is your protection here. So the more atmosphere between you and space,
0: the more protection you get. Guess what doesn't provide protection? An airplane.
3: You get a significant dose of radiation when you go on an airplane ride at 30,000 feet.
0: Gamma rays slicing through you like a hot knife through butter.
3: So we're getting it from cosmic radiation from space, and then we're getting it from our natural environment, which in this case is a yellow cake, but most things give off a little bit of radioactivity, right? Your water's not pure, you drink. It's in the water you drink. I mean, there's ionizing radiation um, being produced almost everywhere. Food, right?
0: Like bananas. Fun fact, you'll absorb about 0.1 millirem of radiation by eating a banana, known officially as a banana equivalent dose. That's actually not very much. There's a slight bit more radiation in Brazil nuts and butter beans.
3: You know, we exchange with the air carbon 14, I forget, you know, there's some milligrams of carbon 14 in your body right now that's radioactive. It's part of your structure.
0: Because the human body has radioactive isotopes like carbon-14 and potassium-40 in it, sleeping next to your spouse actually gives you a tiny dose of radioactivity as well. And this is why I sleep on lead sheets. We also get radiation exposure from less natural sources.
3: We do have contributions here from nuclear testing.
0: All the nuclear weapons tests we did here in the U.S., as well as the nuclear weapons tests carried out overseas. Radiation from those experiments and from accidents ended up in our atmosphere and circled the globe.
3: So it disperses, so it becomes less and it decays and then it gets trapped in the environment, you know, through sedimentation, rainfall puts in the ground and it gets trapped and then we're not exposing ourselves to it. A billion years in the future, whoever's living here is going to come back and say, oh, look, there's this huge spike in radiation uh, in the geologic record and that's from our own nuclear testing.
0: Burning coal also gives off a lot of radiation.
3: We have a significant contribution here, let's say, from coal um, in the atmosphere. When you burn coal, it puts out about four times the radiation that you would get from a nuclear power plant.
0: You actually get less radiation exposure inside the nuclear power plant than you do standing around outside. The point is, radiation is everywhere. Depending on your environment, you'll be exposed to more. For instance, since I live in Denver, which is both high altitude and in an area with a lot of uranium deposits, I'm exposed to more than four times the amount of background radiation every year than someone who lives in Seattle. And I'm probably getting more right now, given that I'm standing just around the corner from a former uranium ore mine. You can't actually go in there, not that I particularly want to. The mine itself and the air shaft up the hill above it have been sealed off with a protective metal grate, But you know what you can do? Test out your Geiger counter.
3: We're standing around the corner, so we're shielding ourselves with this rock.
0: And the background is is 0.4 millisieverts per hour. Per hour. 0.4 millisieverts is about 40 millirem, about the equivalent of a chest X-ray. Okay, and now we're gonna go around the corner to the mouth, the air shaft of this yellow cake mine. I'm going to let it go until another full minute, in just one spot. It's going bananas. Oh, 1.04. All right, well, this has been fun. It's time to go. 1.04 millisieverts, or 104 millirem per hour. If I sat there at the mouth of that air shaft for an hour, I'd be exposed to about a quarter of the amount I normally get in a full year. So not insignificant. And I'll admit, it's a little unsettling.
3: Because it's something we don't see, we can't control, and there's no way to really escape it. I mean, unless you put yourself in a big, little lead box and live in there. And
0: honestly, that might not be such a good idea. Over the years, scientists have conducted a series of studies that protect single-celled organisms, or colonies of cells, from background radiation like the kind Dave was talking about. To their surprise, those protected organisms actually did worse than their unprotected brethren. In fact, they were pretty stressed out as much as single-celled organisms can be, and much more vulnerable to radiation later on. Again, these are just single cells, so we're a ways off from understanding what that means for us humans. But it certainly raises interesting questions about radiation's effect on us, And it's worth noting that radiation has also been an important player in life on Earth all along.
3: You know, so like we we described this radiation we're talking about, we call it ionizing radiation, meaning that it will change the, the, the particles that it interacts with. And so in terms of evolution, you know, we're built with DNA. And so every once in a while, these ionizing radiation particles or waves will interact with the DNA and mutate it.
0: So if radiation has always played a role in life on Earth, likely contributed to our evolution through mutation, and is naturally found inside the human body, how much of a problem is radiation exposure? Is there a safe amount? Well, that kind of depends on who you talk to. This season of Wild Thing is supported solely by First Light Capital Group. Founded by female entrepreneur Alba Toll, First Light Capital Group is an innovative investment firm that strives to generate outstanding financial returns and change how the industry fosters talent and diversity. First Light has a dual-pronged mission. First, it trades public equities, private equities, and debt using its proprietary data-informed investment process. And second, through a separate seed fund, it seeks to cultivate the next generation of female entrepreneurs by providing women-led businesses in the technology and biotechnology sectors with the capital, infrastructure support, and mentorship needed to take their companies to the next level. To learn more about First Light Capital Group, please visit firstlightcapitalgroup.com. Back in the early days, when we first discovered radiation and radioactivity, the limits of how much exposure a person could get were based on the effects we could see, like skin rashes or ulcers or vomiting. Later, we learned that exposure could cause less visible health problems, including cancer, even with smaller doses. So the officials lowered those exposure limits. And those limits continued to shift over the next several decades as we learned more. But there's still debate over how much is safe. On one side is the linear no-threshold camp. It's really not a great name, which argues that even the smallest exposure is a risk. On the other side is the permissible dose camp, also not great, which says that a certain amount of exposure is okay, up to a point. For a long time, the Atomic Energy Commission was in the permissible dose camp. After all, many of the scientists who worked for the Manhattan Project were exposed to radiation and had been fine, and officials felt that the public shouldn't be treated any differently. And to make radiation from nuclear energy or nuclear testing seem less scary, historian Sarah Roby said the AEC compared it to things like chest x-rays in their official reports. Or they'd bring up cosmic radiation
4: and terrestrial radiation, which we just heard about. That contributed to the argument that everybody is always constantly exposed to some amount of radiation. And that has been a condition of life on Earth since the very first, you know, celled organism. Um, and so that is often used as sort of a way, once again, to minimize the, the danger of an elevated amount of radiation in the atmosphere. And so x-rays, bananas, outer space, these become devices to calm people down and say, you are familiar with all these other things. This is actually a very familiar threat. Why are you so worried about a little bit more?
0: Then in 1956, a group of experts at the National Academy of Sciences gave a report about radioactive fallout, which looked specifically at its effect on genetics. It was called the Bear Report, Biological Effects of Atomic Radiation. And it questioned the idea that there was an acceptable amount of radiation you could receive. The impact
4: of the Bear Report was that any bit of radiation could potentially be a problem. So why would you accept having any more radiation? Why would you accept piling on to that?
0: Full disclosure, those initial reports were based on experiments with fruit flies, although later reports did use mouse and human data. But the Bear report moved the needle toward the linear no-threshold camp and led to yet another shift in standards, limiting the recommended annual dose to no more than 500 millirem per year above background. The Bear report might not have gotten much traction outside scientific circles, except that officials also released a layman's version of it, making it so anyone could understand its findings. Suddenly, radiation seemed a lot scarier. In fact, that idea that radiation could cause genetic mutation no doubt inspired a lot of science fiction at the time. But the public fears may have been overblown. Mice who've been blasted with radiation do have genetic mutations, but we haven't seen any evidence of that in humans. In fact, studies of kids who were born to parents that had worked in or lived near Chernobyl showed that the rate of mutations was the same as for the general public. And their parents were people who had been in the thick of things, who'd cleaned up debris, or been evacuated from the nearest towns. Studies are still ongoing, and we're a long way from saying that genetic mutations aren't a concern, but they might not be as scary an outcome as we once thought. There are also questions about the links between radiation and cancer. The Idaho National Laboratory has acknowledged that over the decades, some of its employees became ill with certain types of cancers that are specifically attributed to work with radioactive materials. Those workers are eligible to apply for compensation and medical benefits. But that doesn't include all cancer diagnoses, because the role of radiation exposure isn't always as clear
4: cut. One of the things we have to be careful about when we're talking about permissible dose is that if we're talking about a low enough level that we're thinking about cancer-causing mutations, that is not something that's going to show up next year. It might show up 15 years from now or 20 years from now. And I live in Idaho. We are 5,000 feet above sea level. And because of that, we get more cosmic radiation than your average person at sea level. And so if you are somebody who works at Idaho National Laboratory and you're around the reactors, some of the radiation that you're exposed to is cosmic, is background. Some of it might be from your job. It might not be. Um, It's impossible, though, to point a finger at the exact cause of cancer. We can identify trends. We can see where there might be higher incidences of cancer in a population. But in an individual person-to-person basis, there is virtually no way to say why you got cancer. Is it the sun? Or is it fallout? There's no doubt that
0: radiation can cause cancers. But we really don't know what the threshold is for that. It likely varies from person to person and depends on what type of radiation, what body part was exposed. How you came into contact with it. So many variables. This is partly why the debate over linear no-threshold versus permissible dose continues. We don't have the information that will settle it once and for all. And it could still be a while before science has concrete answers. But here's the other thing we have to consider. Radiation doesn't just occur in the moment. It can persist in the environment for a very long time. You've probably heard the phrase half-life before which is the amount of time it takes for half the atoms in a radioactive substance to decay, to change into a different type of element. Let's say you start with a million atoms of some substance. In the span of one half-life, only 500,000 will be left. Another half-life, and there are only 250,000, and so on. The half-life of some types of uranium is 4.5 billion years, which is actually kind of interesting because that's the exact age of the Earth. So as of right now, we have half the amount that we did when Earth was formed. As it decays, uranium eventually becomes radium, which decays into radon, which eventually decays into lead, a very stable element. For plutonium, which is created in certain types of reactors, the half-life is anywhere between 82 million and 14.4 years. Quite a spread. The types of plutonium closer to 14 years are exponentially more radioactive, which is why they decay so much more quickly. But the point is, much of this stuff sticks around for a while, and we're still figuring out the effect it has on our health and the environment. So how do we deal with it?
3: There are four generic options. Leave it on or near the surface, put it deep underground, put it in the ocean, or put it in the air, which is outer space.
0: That's coming up on the next episode of Wild Thing. If you're enjoying Wild Thing, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, definitely tell your friends. It really helps get the word out about the show and makes another season more likely. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Look for at Wild Thing Pod. For more information about the show, and of course, if you want some t-shirts or cool stickers, check out the website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's Wild Thing Podcast, all one word. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc, with generous support from First Light Capital. Wild Thing is edited by Alicia Lincoln, with sound mixing and music from Louis Weeks. Our executive producer is Scott Carney, and I'm your host and creator, Laura Krantz.